We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. How's it going? That was the voice of Patagonia's Ron Chenard. And this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between the outdoors, action sports and activism. In each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. My guest for this episode of Type 2 is Shannon Galpin, an explorer, writer, journalist, artist and global activist known primarily for her work on climate action and women's rights. I first became aware of Shannon through her long-running work in Afghanistan where she's been involved with women's rights projects for over a decade now. She first visited that country in 2009, eventually helping to establish the first Afghan women's national cycling team and continuing to advocate for the right of women in the country to ride bikes in safety. Shannon wrote two books about this experience, as well as producing a documentary called Afghan Cycles. Highly recommend that if you want to seek that one out. And today, with social and political change, Affecting Afghanistan once again, she's been working to help evacuate the people she worked with and their families from the country, as well as setting up post-evacuation programs for them around Europe, the US and Canada. In addition to this important emotionally evolving work, Shannon has also been collaborating with her daughter Devon on a project called Endangered Activism, through which she focuses on field research to inspire youth activism for wildlife conservation and climate justice. So as you might gather from that, and as you will gather from our subsequent conversation, Shannon's got a truly remarkable range of interests and is creating important transformative work across a number of different creative fronts, An approach she sums up by saying during our conversation, while my curiosity outweighs my fear, it's uh, the type of empathetic, inquisitive answer that defines her approach to activism, which I found to be hugely inspiring, and I hope you do too. I'll be back at the end. Here's me and Shannon. Enjoy. All right. Let's try again. So, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll repeat um, uh, what I'm kind of telling everyone. It's a it's a loaded question, given that I'm involved in the Afghan evacuation, and it's been like 11, 11 and a half weeks of no sleep and um, just endless frustration. So, I'm not great. Yeah, sure, I'm sure. And the work you've been doing in Afghanistan, then. Um, it has been, I mean, you've been, that's been something you've been involved in for 10 years now. And you, before we had a little glitch, you were just telling me that you can date that because your first visit was just when Obama was elected. Was that right? Exactly. I flew through the night of the election. So I arrived in 2008. Right. So over a decade, basically. Yeah. And and your original trip, was that, what, what took you there in the first place? <laughs> that's actually one of the hardest questions. Um, I, I wanted to... I wanted to to see Afghanistan through my own eyes and I wanted to work with women and girls. But um, as a white woman and a white American, I was very cautious of not wanting to come in and kind of white savior, um, you know, and assume that I knew what was needed. But at the same time, I was very disenchanted by foreign policy and international aid. 
And I wanted to um, see Afghanistan for myself. I had lived in Beirut briefly. I had traveled through Syria. I was very um, interested with this part of the world. And at the time, Afghanistan was ranked the worst place in the world to be a woman. Um, I am a victim of gender violence. My only sister is a victim of gender violence. And uh, in order to better understand the ingredients that allow gender violence to proliferate and to be acceptable um, throughout a culture, I, I wanted to go to Afghanistan and, and learn. And very quickly, you know, was blown away and fell in love with the country. So that was your goal, like as generally as you've just put it, like to just see what you could understand, see see what you could um, did you have, and I completely take your point about white white savior complex and being very wary of that, particularly in that part of the world, which is obviously historically essentially been ravaged by by that writ large on a on a huge geopolitical scale. Um, but did did you have any idea about how you might be able to contribute, or how might you be able to help, or were you completely open minded about what you might find? I was completely open-minded. Like I went over there and almost like a tourist, um, and I mean that in a good way, not a, a bad way, I spent four weeks from dawn to dusk traveling the country. Um, and I was with a translator and fixer the whole time who knew um, not just his own country very well um, and could act as a translator, but he also understood the aid um kind of the, the, the aid conundrum that was happening in Afghanistan. He'd worked with a lot of different organizations and he knew that I wanted to understand it from kind of a wide variety of, of women. I met women who were members of parliament and women who were in prison and women who were teachers and women who were urban and rural and young and old. And it was kind of a four week um, listening tour for want of a better, for want of a better uh, explanation. I, I was curious that's really, I guess, what it comes down to is I was curious and I wanted to see Afghanistan through my own eyes. Is it fair to say that 2008 was quite a progressive moment in Afghanistan's recent history? Definitely. I mean, 2008, you had several years that you know schools were opening, cafes were opening, there were bars. Um, there was a, you know, a cultural scene that was building in the urban areas and, um, and, a, and a lot of uh, Afghans returning to Afghanistan to, you know, create businesses, you know, startups and, and really a, a youth culture was emerging. And what did you find? How did you find the situation for women in Afghanistan at that, at that point then? Did you, I'm, I'm guessing from the work that you subsequently became involved with, there were, there was some hopeful things. There was some really positive things that you, that you found and that you pursued. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of the umbrella is that Afghanistan quickly, um, Afghanistan quickly emerged in, I guess, every day that I was there as one of the most fascinating places I had ever been. And I had already lived overseas at that point for my entire adult life, um, or lived and worked overseas my entire life. I've, I've traveled extensively in Afghanistan was, endlessly fascinating. Um, it is one of the most stimulating intellectually and, and culturally places that I've ever been. And I don't think people really understand that because we only get this very narrow view of, of it being war and poverty and, and oppression. Um, 
but the situation for women was still very difficult, still is very difficult, but it was, there were these glimmers that, you know, things were changing um, because women were going to school, because women represented nearly half of parliament. Um, there, there was just a lot of, a lot of um, nods that things were going to be different. Yeah, I mean, your point about the culture of the country's so interesting. And one of the things that's so maddening about the Western perception of Afghanistan, isn't it? Because, you know, historically, and I guess I'm talking, you know, four or five hundred years ago, really, like the country was at the center of a, an artistic renaissance and like culturally was as important to global culture as the, as the areas that we're used to in the West kind of venerating you know, like whether it's like our own Renaissance or, you know, different areas of cultural flowering that we've experienced around the world. Like we're so used to sort of talking about these places in a particular way in the West that we forget that the same things that we venerate here happened there as well and have just been completely forgotten. Um, but when, but when you, so I'm taking, I take it this first trip was when you sort of found out about the story about Afghans women cycling as well. No. Started to explore that one. No, um, that was when I got the the bug to start exploring the country by bike because there were bicycles everywhere, but there was only men and women riding, or sorry, men and boys riding bikes. So I saw bicycles everywhere, urban, rural, you know, being used to commute on, but women were not allowed to ride bikes, and this was a cultural barrier that had yet to be broken, you know, a gender barrier that had yet to be broken. Um, and I, I basically was seeing all of these women that were becoming members of parliament that were becoming, um, I mean, athletes and in, in other aspects, artists, activists, kind of the, this big generation of activists was emerging. And yet the bicycle was still taboo. And I was really curious about that. So the next trip that I took, I brought my own bicycle with and started mountain biking in the country. And that was really um, based upon a desire to understand this gender barrier. Why had not the gender barrier been broken in Afghanistan? And that just led down this rabbit hole um, over the next I don't know, 12 years. Um, of looking at the bike's role in gender and looking at the bike's role in the you know, women's suffragette movement historically, because the bike is intrinsically and historically linked to women's rights. Um, and so the fact that it was a taboo in Afghanistan and it was still banned at the time, it was illegal in Saudi Arabia. So I'm fascinated by that. Could you explain a little bit more about the, 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 the symbolism of that then, like why this has become such a polarized, because obviously you're talking about historically as well. I'm assuming you mean in the West as well, historically, it was also this kind of polarizing gender issue. Like what, what are the roots of that then? Like what, what, what does it symbolize? It's, in that it, the bicycle is so um, underestimated, I think, in what it, what it is and what it can be. We see it certainly now in this generation in the West, it is, um, it is a vehicle to commute and it is a sports. Um, and I think we're starting to have a more general conversation around it's a vehicle to flight, to fight common, um, to fight climate change. But 
historically, it is intrinsically linked with the suffragette movement in the UK and the US. And it's really because women in that time needed needed to have either a male escort or they were, you know, kind of um, dependent upon another mode of transportation. And when women started learning how to ride a bike, it gave them literal freedom. It gave them freedom of movement. And women in America and Britain and across the world when they've started riding bikes, but it's always really interesting, the the very um, kind of heart of where we see a lot of cycling movements come out of that are linked to women's suffragette. Um, women were called obscene. They were called, uh, they were, they were harlots. They were, um, uh, you know, assumed to be prostitutes or they were, you know, uh, they were, they're kind of given all manner of, of negative branding because they were riding to, they were daring to ride a bike. So it's a control thing. It's, it's, a, it's, it symbolizes a, a, a lack of control or like, or, or like more control for women. You're, and then you're allowing women to freely go about their community in a way that um, does not require an escort, require a man. Um, and that is also, I think we all feel it when we ride a bike, that it literally feels like freedom. And whenever I talk to someone who's new to riding bikes as an adult, they all say it feels like flying. Um, they always use you know, kind of metaphors around that. But you're straddling a bike seat. And so that also visually is considered obscene and can be seen to, you know, be controversial just in that nature. Yeah. I mean, any woman who's ridden a bike anywhere in the world will have uh, been on the receiving end of, you know, the the type of comment that that attracts, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you compound that with obviously the context of, of Afghani society at that point in time, patriarchal, very conservative, hugely religious is an understatement yeah you've got a powerful social issue on a lot of levels um so what did you find well when i first started riding um, my mountain bike it was in areas in the mountains and where i knew afghans so i felt comfortable starting to do something where i could ask pretty open-ended questions around um whether they were um you know, shocked, whether they were upset, whether they were offended. And then when it came out very quickly, you know, and every time I rode a bike across the country, um, it was really that I was met with curiosity, invitations for more conversation, invitations back to their homes for dinner to meet their family. Um, You know, there was a curiosity about um, a foreigner in a lot of these areas, um, a woman and someone, a woman foreigner riding a bicycle with no apparent agenda, you know, these were, these were done in, in, without the idea that I'm going to start a bike club or that we're going to get their girls on bikes. It was surely, it was purely to, um, explore the barrier and explore the reasons behind why girls couldn't ride. Because as we've seen with groups like, um, World Bicycle Relief and others, the bike is an incredible tool for social justice and for active, um, engagement in communities, particularly for girls. It increases access to education and medical care. So it's a, it's a very inexpensive tool. So in theory, it would be a great project. But my goal was I was there to, um, I was working in the women's prisons. I was working with the deaf community. I was doing projects with artists and musicians. And um, the bicycle was kind of my, my day off 
was, you know, I, I would, I would run my bike in between those projects and use it as a way to talk about the why, why was it so controversial? Why was it still so taboo? And as I met girls who were boxing and um, they're part of the Taekwondo um, teams, there were girls who were soccer and cricket. All these girls were becoming athletes, but still couldn't ride a bike. So those activities weren't freighted with the same social baggage as as the act of riding a bike. Less so, um, and they are still they are still controversial because they are still sport for women, and that was banned during the Taliban time. It's been banned again now, um, all sports. But the bicycle is you know inherently public. So you can play football on a pitch or cricket on a pitch, and you can play volleyball or basketball inside a closed facility. You can't do that with a bicycle. In a bicycle, you are you in public doing something considered controversial for women, and there's no way to hide. So it's a provocative act on a lot of levels in that, in that society. And I assume, yeah, as you say, like a, a, an American woman being in that environment doing that for no good reason yeah it's certainly going to spark some debate um so the the project that you that i'm aware of then that that developed from this which is afghan cycles um how how did that come about how did that develop from from this initial um understanding and realization of the situation that you've just described so afghan cycles is the name of the documentary that i helped produce uh, that came out and documented the first generation of Afghan women to uh, cycle for five years. That production continued. Um, at the same time, I was working on the ground doing what I was already doing, um, starting in the fall of 2012, um, where I started working with the first national cycling team, coaching, training, supporting, raising money, um, and continued to do that for years. And so the the project really came to me because uh, another photojournalist had found out that there were Afghans riding bicycles for sport, not just for transportation, men, and said that the, the men's cycling team wanted to meet and that they wanted to have a conversation and, and you know go for a bike ride. So I met up with the men's team to go for a bike ride and at the same time discovered that there was a women's team and nobody knew about them. Like there was no press about it. The foreign press that I knew in Afghanistan who were always looking for new stories did not know about this small group of girls who had started to ride. Um, and so in the spring of 2013, I returned with um, donate like, 500 pounds of donated cycling gear and racing bikes. And um, from that moment on, started supporting them. The irony being that my prior life, I was a sports trainer and I happened to be a mountain biker. So right. like the world's converging at a, you know, in Afghanistan, it was, it was kind of serendipitous. Yeah. A Venn diagram of, of all the work you'd been doing up yeah. until that point. So, um, yeah, the film's obviously separate, but the actual work on the ground that you were doing. Um, so how did that evolve as as you began to sort of understand that world more? So it was a really unique situation that I found out about the national women's team and then you know came over in the spring with all this gear that we had rounded up and, and donated so that they had some proper training gear. 
and then started to look at what the next steps would be. And that same summer in 2013, an Afghan girl started a bike club just for fun, just to teach her friends how to ride bike. And, and they were going to ride the streets of Kabul socially. And at the same time, there was a young woman in Bamiyan, which is up in the mountains where there's a ski program and it's it's very rural, but also very outdoor oriented. Um, Bamiyan is where the Buddhas famously were, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, Zara had had started teaching girls to ride in Bamiyan and solely for the idea that they had to walk. It's rural. They had to walk so far to go to university or go to high school. And so she started teaching girls to ride bikes. And then eventually that spawned the second um, main girls team in the country. So there was somebody in Kabul, somebody in Bamiyan, and then these little bike clubs started popcorning all over the country um, within you know a year or two of each other, often not knowing about each other, but there was you know, something in the water. Right. And um, how did it, so it, it basically, the, I'm, I'm guessing these communities, these scenes started to, you were able to connect them and to sort of actually start to create a wider community through the country? Yeah, it started really with Kabul and Bamiyan being these two kind of isolated locations geographically, but that there'd be multiple groups of girls within those two geographic locations. And the national team, you know, developed to a certain extent with with the main coach, who um, was both the good guy and the bad guy, as as happens a lot. Um, but he he kind of nurtured the federation to a point where the girls were racing outside of the country. Um, that the men's team, especially, was racing regularly um, in the country and out. And that started to become something that we could leverage for media and, and use that as a way to start to normalize girls on bikes. But really, it was the girls in Bamiyan who did the most. It was founded by women, led by women, grown by women. And in the end, you know, when the mullahs uh, decided that you know, they didn't like this, this was very controversial, the two founders, Zara and Zakia, spoke went and spoke to the mullahs on their own negotiated with them um and were able to continue to ride and soon they started the first racing for girls in afghanistan and so the first women's races were all down to these two young women in bamiyan i mean a couple of questions to follow that then so you you've mentioned that the mullahs um decided it was too controversial and and and, and didn't like it was that was that the initial response in the community that you that you and the and the women you were working with were faced with. Yeah, I mean the the women who chose to ride literally risked their lives to ride a bicycle and that never went away. Um it would you know the the mullahs could say well it's because of how they're dressed. That was usually the kind of tamer explanation and that was what they used for a lot of things to say well you know how because you're riding a bike and you're straddling a bike seat you know or the bar you know, all of a sudden now you're wearing pants and, you know, your head's not covered or, or whatever. And so the girls often, you know, they, they covered their heads, they wore long tunics or they started to, to wear, you know, baggier pants, but they were dressed like athletes, not like, you know, women walking the streets. And the, the compromises were kind of negotiable. Um, 
but the risk never went away. I mean, they, they were attacked, they were harassed, they were, um, their families were harassed. Um, these, I, I always kind of come back to, these are young women who felt the bike was so important to them that they risked their lives to ride a bicycle. And we can't understand that in the West. Um, you know, we talk about traffic and, and, uh, road rage and other things that happen towards bicyclists. Um, that's a huge issue where I'm at right now in, in Edinburgh. There's a lot of, you know, kind of bike car conflict, but it's different than being targeted or having your family targeted because you ride a bicycle and being threatened because you ride a bicycle. On, on the flip side, um, how did you see the, the women involved? How did this whole situation affect them both positively and, and negatively? Positively, we saw, you know, these girls just kind of blossom. I mean, for one of our, I mean, like, like you see with a lot of, you know, young people when they, when they find a sport that they love, um, you know, all of the things that come with sports, increase confidence, you know, increase social groups. Um, but with, with cycling, because this gave them the freedom to move, the freedom to travel, the freedom to, um, also race and to have transportation to school. Um, the bike was something that they were fighting for. The bike was something that they, like, they refused to give up. They would often talk before this, you know, the collapse of Kabul happened, we ask them often, like, you know, what will you do if the Taliban come back? Or, you know, is it worth the risk? And they always said, it's worth the risk. And they all said, I refuse to stop just because the Taliban returned. I don't think anyone anticipated, um, you know, that we would see a complete return to the Taliban at the time we were asking those questions. Um, and now, you know, everything is banned. Yeah. I mean, obviously be great to ask you a few questions on that particular topic in a sec but I, I had another question if that's mm -hmm. all right about um you know as you mentioned white saviorism because I'm struck by the fact that obviously you're going to a society like this and you know clearly your intentions are wholly positive and holy but necessarily there's there is I guess there's a conundrum at the heart of it for you because in in allowing these women to flourish in this way obviously it's actually increasing the danger that they're in as you've described um which is kind of at the heart of the of the kind of white savior conundrum that you that you alluded to earlier so i'm interested in how you reconcile that really and i'm sure that's the theme of your work that you've grappled with you know you've you, and we'll get to it later on because i'm so interested in like the 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 rest of the work that you've done because obviously it's not just about this story um but i imagine that that's it's not too presumptuous of me to to suggest i imagine that's quite a quite a thing you grapple with on on the day-to-day -day really uh, especially when you've got such a such a very inflammatory scenario like you've just described so how how, how do you reconcile that conundrum as i've characterized it it's a great question and i always come back to i didn't start the program you know, uh, the Afghans started this, the Afghans led it, the Afghans grew it. I supported them. I got them equipment that they needed, funding that they needed, training that they needed, and tried to help them achieve the goals that they had. And it's no different than when I had a board member back when I had a, um, when I had a nonprofit for my work in Afghanistan. 
who didn't want to fund a school. He did, they felt that it was too risky because girls were getting killed going to school. So if we funded this school, what if someone got hurt? And my feeling is, is you can't work in Afghanistan and uh, can't work in Afghanistan and be scared of what if someone gets hurt? It happens constantly and it's a huge risk. But to me, if Afghan women want to ride a bike, if Afghan women want to go to school, if Afghan women want to be artists, the very least that the rest of us can do is support them. And yeah. that's a very different thing than me saying, I think that I yeah. should start a bike yeah, club yeah. in Afghanistan and I'm going to get these girls on bikes, even though it's so dangerous. It's a very different thing. Yeah. And it's subtle, but it's it's important to understand that distinction. Well, I mean, it's it is the distinction isn't it you know it is it is why it's why it's not white saviorism you know it's why because it's facilitating rather than directing isn't it you know or exactly. like pres prescribing i guess would be a, a better word to use there um and i always looked at it as i have a 16 year old girl and i started working in afghanistan when she was three and i always looked at what if the only reason that we're in a different situation is that i had you know the you know bizarre magic of a geographic passport that I was born into, you know, yeah. and it just happened to be that I I landed in America. These young women landed in Afghanistan, um, and so what if the tables were turned and yeah. this was me and my daughter? So I always looked at that as a as a balance of what would I hope for her if she was in their situation. And it, it always comes back to, yeah, I don't want anyone to come in and dictate what you should do, what risks you should take, what does freedom or um, the right to choose look like for you. All of us have should have the right to make those decisions ourselves. What kind of risks are we willing to take? I don't know if I would take the same risks that these young women take. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky that I don't have to make that decision and that I can choose to come and go. They cannot. But for me, it was always that if my daughter was in those positions, I would hope that others would help her achieve her goals. And that's as simple well, as I can get, make it. Yeah. And also like the history of activism and social justice and, and social progress, unfortunately, is filled with conflict. I mean, it's, it, it, it requires bravery and it requires people putting themselves right out there to change the status quo. And the, the other thing that just struck me when you were talking then was like you know the argument i've just kind of made as devil's advocate if you like is also the argument that's used to justify a lot of these existing status quos and like and scenarios because you know like it, it that that leads to to people that are comfortable with the situation that's the kind of argument that they will use to justify it as well so exactly and how often and, and i speak from as as a woman how often Am I being told what I can or cannot do, where I can or cannot go, um, what I should or should not be daily, daily since I've been born? And it shouldn't be any less relevant for Afghans. Like it isn't assumed that they are or it shouldn't be assumed that they don't have the same freedom of choice to take the same risks that others would take just because it's been um you know, a battleground for nearly 40 years. These young women still deserve the autonomy 
to choose what level of risk they want to take so that they can have what level of freedom they want to have. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's the choice to make that decision yourself. And that, like you say, that's, that's a constant, like every society in the country is grappling with, in the world, sorry, is, is grappling with that to a certain degree. Obviously in that society, it's extremely heightened for the reasons that we've discussed. Um, yeah. But on the, on the film projects, like I don't want to dwell on that too much, but you did um, mention an interesting aspect of that, which was the, the coach, because the, the film documentary it's one of those, isn't it, where it starts out as one thing and then it ends up becoming about something very, very different. Mm-hmm. And and the coach that you mentioned is at the heart of that. Um, you produced that documentary. You're obviously involved in that. Like, how was that experience? Because from the outside, it looks like it was probably very emotionally draining in a lot of ways. Um, so how do you look at that now when you look back on it? Oh, <laughs> it's really difficult when I look back on it, mainly because I was in a kind of between a rock and a hard place. I was straddling both the storytelling side and wanting to give um, give the, the film crew the best possible access. Um, I was the only one who had spent time in Afghanistan. Um, it was all female film crew. And I wanted to, you know, the, the film is fully in Dari. So it's in the local language so that we didn't translate. Um, we let these women speak in their own voices and made it a foreign film, which makes it more, makes it less accessible for a lot of Western audiences who don't, Americans hate subtitles, <laughs> but um, it was authentic in that way. The part that was difficult was that I knew way too much. I was working with the teams. I was um, working with the systems around corruption and abuse and trying to expose that. and being involved in the film and being involved as, you know, a, a coach and supporter and, and, um, and eventually the person that took down the coach. Um, I was just, I was, I knew too much. I was too involved and I was never going to be happy unless the film was like taking down the coach publicly because I already had that on camera. I already had him admitting to corruption and fraud and, you know, the men's team accusing him of abuse. And in my mind, he got away with it. And the film is a beautiful story from the perspective of these young women, but it lets an abuser off the hook. Which I imagine must be so <laughs> maddeningly frustrating to, I mean, to, it, put it, to put it lightly. To put it lightly, yeah. I mean, we see abusers getting let off the hook all over the world. And we see it coming as a repeated refrain over and over in the sports world. Gymnastics right now with women's football, um, cycling is inherently abusive. Um, and I'm, a, as I said earlier, I'm a victim of gender violence. So my line in the sand is abuse. And time and time again, we see abusers getting away with it, not being held accountable for various reasons. And I I cannot tolerate it. Well, those cultures can be used as cover for control and coercion, ultimately, can't they? Like very, um, especially that coaching dynamic. Definitely. I mean, I think we see that there's a trust and almost a, I mean, I think there's almost like a Stockholm syndrome between athletes and coaches in many situations where they don't 
they're, they're so kind of in this bubble. And particularly in Afghanistan, it was this way. They were so in a bubble that they are, they, they, several of the girls still don't think of the coach as a bad person. They just still don't, right. they still believe the coach. They don't believe the facts. Right. And so even though, yes, he taught you how to ride a bicycle, but he also stole all the money, sold all the bikes, um, harassed and abused people, had other people beat up, rumors of a prostitution ring, um, like, there's so many things. And yet, for the girls, but that's who taught me how to ride a bike. It's it's really difficult. Um, and, you know, put me in the place of almost being the bad guy because... I'm coming in and out of the country. I'm not there in a, you know, day to day. Um, and so really was working with the men's team because they, they were fighting back against the coach and eventually had him removed. So the situation that you described earlier, you said that you've been like, I'll do a quick recap. I don't really want to put you in a position where you have to kind of comment on the situation in Afghanistan right now, because obviously it's, I imagine for you, it's extremely sensitive, but the short version, I actually do recommend the Netflix series. If people are um, listening to this and want to get some background um, on the history of Afghanistan, and the war on terror, which um, has been criticized in certain quarters for certain political leanings. But as, as an overview of how we got where we are in Afghanistan, I think is, is as good as any that's out there in popular culture right now. But the, um, the situation is that the Taliban are now back in power in Afghanistan um, and all those strides that you've described um, across society, and we've obviously used sport as a lens through which to explore some of those strides, have now gone. I mean, we're, we're, we're essentially back to where we were um, before the invasion in, at the end of 2001, I think is, 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 is fair to say. Um, it, it sounds like you have been furiously trying to help the people that you know over there um, get out. Is that, is that the work that you've been doing the last... I think you said 11 weeks, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, basically since Kabul fell, um, I have been working to evacuate cyclists, families of cyclists, um, and assisting on other evacuations of athletes, artists, activists. Um, and yeah, I mean, Afghanistan and particularly for the women, but also for the men, particularly Hazara, um, men and women who have just you know seized every opportunity created opportunities um really shown you know where that country was moving to over the last 20 years um all seeing that erased almost overnight sports banned school is banned um you know there's there's door-to-door searches by the taliban and there's no sense that even though the a lot of western countries had hoped that you know this was a Taliban light? Absolutely not. You know, this is there. Nothing has changed other than they're on social media. Um, and the Hazara, just so I understand correctly, that's a, is that um, a tribal group in, in Afghanistan? Yeah, um, the, the Hazaras are the ethnic minority that are directly targeted by the Taliban. Um, they're throughout Bamiyan in Daikundi in particular. Um, but you know, in pockets throughout the country, and it's been likened a genocide. The Hazaras call it a genocide, and right now, I mean, you you are seeing you know 
massive displacement. They are being targeted, they are being um, discriminated against, but they're also having their land and houses seized and given to Taliban fighters. Um, and this is something that's been going on for a long time, but just the, it has never been covered in the West. And now I think we're seeing that get a little bit more prominence. It's just, I think the West is more educated about the different ethnic um, groups within Afghanistan and that it's not a blanket, you know, it's not a monolith. Yeah, I mean, I, I've read around the history of the country quite a lot. The last book I actually read was called The Places in Between by Rory Stewart, oh, yeah. in which which he, and that's kind of why I knew about the Hazara really, just because, and that's interesting, that book, because obviously that's set in winter 2001, 2002, um, which is post the first Taliban. And he actually spends a lot of time with the Hazara community where he talks about the, the the beginning of what you just talked about like the flowering of the, of like how they were getting some freedom back from the taliban and you know like how positive that hope was um so yeah just extremely extremely um i don't even know what word to use really sad dispiriting upsetting yeah. depressing um to sort of to sort of hit I always thought that was an interesting book because he you know he walked across afghanistan so it was one of the first books in that era that showed um, Afghanistan through the lens of action, you know, um, not through the lens of a, or action being active travel, you know, walking, biking, instead of in a convoy or a car, which is how most people see the country, if at all. Um, but my very favorite book is by Darva Murphy, an Irish woman who wrote a book called Full Tilt. And in the 60s, she wrote from Ireland um, all the way to, I think the end point was India, but she rode through Afghanistan. And so you have a story of a, of essentially the first woman to ride a bike through Afghanistan. It was like a three-speed, you know, cruiser or something. She had a rifle because of wolves. Um, but it is, to me, that one of the best books of looking at, this was pre-Soviet invasion. And she illuminates so beautifully what one, the beauty of traveling by bicycle, you know, and exploring the world through, through a bike. Um, my favorite way of, of seeing travel logs being written where there's not, it's not about speed. It's about experiencing where you are and the interactions that you have. And so she highlights beautifully what I think everyone who has spent time in Afghanistan sees, which is the incredible hospitality you know, that there are, there is no culture as welcoming as Afghans and that isn't spoken about enough. What's it called? Full Tilt. Oh, I'm going to read that. Um, yeah. Cause, cause obviously you forget that it's only four years ago, but there's one point like Kabul was basically completely on the hippie trail, wasn't it? You know, mm -hmm. there's a great Bruce Chatwin essay from when he was at the Sunday times, which was, um, him essentially visiting there and you know essentially doing like a sunday times travel piece really you know like if you look back on it now yeah. of like um the hippie there trail but, oh, sorry. yeah yeah exactly and 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 also like that the, there was a there was a, an understanding back then as well of like the the historical like the cultural history of the country as well like which is which obviously in the subsequent you know we and we've sort of alluded to this at various points in the conversation but that that's obviously just completely off people's radar now isn't it you know um right i'm gonna check that out that's really yeah that's really fascinating. it's it's um, i think it's illuminating for sure so w with your efforts to get 
people out and to 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 sort of help people like wh- where are you now in that in that situation so i'm kind of in my last few groups but so we've gotten people out and i've been able to get people out with onward travel so that they have visas they're not going to be going to a refugee camp um the problem is now i mean it's it's been a blockade not an evacuation and from the beginning it's been a blockade which is just a much longer story of dysfunction and a complete kind of global shutout of of afghans you know this was never about evacuating afghans they should have been evacuated before the airport closed and it should have been on the um should have been the responsibility of the governments of the world particularly the US and UK who were there at the time. And instead it's on the shoulders of people like me who are just individuals who are connected to Afghanistan, who have knowledge about Afghanistan and who are getting people out. But every single day it gets harder. Every single day it gets more expensive. Um, And I think we all feel like that window is rapidly shutting because the world's attention is, is changed. Um, most people, if they know about the evacuation, assume that it's over and um, it feels like it's barely started. Yeah. I mean, I think people, I think there was like a week where it was in the news, essentially, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just been forgotten really, hasn't it? I yeah. think. I think that Which speaks is... to how we talk about refugees in general. Yeah. The problem is, is if we don't start figuring out how we're going to deal with refugee crises, we didn't figure it out with Syria. Um, we, we aren't figuring it out now. It's, it's almost impossible. Borders are closed. You know, countries don't want to take, uh, asylum seekers, but this is only going to get worse because of climate change. And so there's a kind of a, this is like a microcosm within the global idea of there will be more and more refugees all the time. How are we, how are we going to deal with this and how are countries, um, going to start to f- kind of change the fear that that re- revolves around the concept of refugees because right now most i feel like most of the barriers it revolves around fear and i mean as somebody who's got such a an involved and, and experienced position on this like do you have a do you have a solution <laughs> such a big question and, and i always feel like it's, it's, it's such a, it's almost glib you know i don't I don't mean to sort of be be completely reductive and sound stupid, but it, it it's actually the second conversation I've had around this today, and um, okay. it's you, you know we look at climate. You know, we're not even talking like if you start looking at climate. You know, you mentioned Syria, you mentioned Afghanistan. Obviously, those are about displacement through conflict, um, but we're already seeing like the effects of the impact of climate on on populations and. In, particularly in Europe and how this is this issue's been weaponized really by governments so how what what on earth can we do about that oh it is the million dollar question because this is not going to get any better and i'm i'm in scotland right now and you know cop 26 is coming up and like is that a serious question that they're having no is that uh I mean, this this is what we're going to have to deal with. It doesn't magically go away. And what I think is one of the biggest barriers comes back to storytelling, because I think that the when you say the word refugee, it creates in everyone's heads now um, 
you know, these I date the 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 visuals of poverty, the visuals of you know now. Unfortunately, it has you know a very um, loaded visual that we didn't have when it was around World War II and World War One. Um, and I think that so I think that some of this is very racist, if I'm very honest, because who are the majority of the people being displaced around the world? People of color. So predominantly white communities in the West, in America and others are the ones that still control government, still control. I mean, this, this goes down a whole rabbit hole, but I mean, it really does come down to the fear of poverty spreading and racism. And if we can use stories as a way to highlight what we all know, which is uh, refugees add to their communities as long as they are accepted into their communities. You know, if we don't keep them pushed out and keep them on the fringe and we welcome them in to our communities, that mix of culture and vibrancy and skill sets um, only makes communities stronger. But... I think that there is a lot of misperceptions around that right now that need to be broken through. And that's only going to come from storytelling. Um, I, I keep saying with Afghanistan in particular, it's a double whammy because not only are, do you have this, what you have the best of the best leaving Afghanistan right now. Those are the people who are being allowed to leave. So any community would be lucky to have these Afghans in their community. And at the same time, it's a massive tragedy for Afghanistan because Afghanistan's losing its best. And what does that mean then for a community as it needs to eventually get through this period of the Taliban? Yeah. I mean, and that again, a that's a long answer answer. <laughs> no, but it's, it, you, you summarized it beautifully. I mean, that, that, that is the, the situation. And, you know, from from the Western perspective and from the perspective of a country like Afghanistan, I mean, it does bring me very neatly to, to your um, life as an activist, really, because, mm. you know, the looking at it, it looks like this storytelling and finding creative and compelling ways to tell these stories has always been at the root of, of your work, really. Yeah, I, I'm starting to have a little bit of time and space to reflect on like the why, because I never really thought about it at the time. It just was, I was always trying to find ways to share stories, to, um, to break through the, you know, the, the, the misperceptions of people. Um, and if anyone's listening to this, they're going to, they're going to understand, you know, my language is not super fluid. Um, I had two brain injuries and so I had back-to-back -back strokes and it took my language, it affected my language. And I think I became even more determined to find ways to use storytelling as a base of um, activism through art, through imagery. Um, you know, I, I couldn't write, I couldn't speak very well. I still struggle, um, especially when I'm tired, um, to find the right words and... To me, what I have, what I felt happened to me when, when I was, uh, I mean, 17, um, nearly killed because of a, an attack, I lost voice. And what I discovered was not only was my voice taken, nobody wanted to hear it. 
The police didn't want to hear it, even though I was nearly killed. Um, my family didn't want to hear it because it was embarrassing. Um, and I think that I didn't recognize at the time, I, well, I know I didn't recognize at the time, how important voice is. The, the, and it's not just that, because you, you never, you can't just say, okay, you know, we, we're going to give this person a voice. We're going to, which I hear all the time when we talk about other, um, other cultures, particularly with women, uh, we need to give them voice. We all have voice. We need people to listen. And the only way we can get people to listen, particularly in this day and age, is creative storytelling, um, whether that is through film or podcasts or books or um, you know, more alternative things, which I love, which is street art. I install murals, which most have a pretty strong gender violence or um, women's rights theme to them, um, because that is taking up space um, you know, in the most public of ways. And surprising people into into thinking differently or into having a conversation about something that's hard through art. So when you look back now, by the sounds of it, are you recognizing that the work that you've been doing since what happened to you has been a way of processing what happened to you, but also like rediscovering what your voice actually is? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think... I mean, I'm old now, so I think I'm able to like take a little bit of time and look backwards and and realize like, um, now it now it looks like breadcrumbs, you know. It looks it all looks like it was going somewhere at the time, and when I talk about it, it's like this splatter gun, because I am a I'm a film producer, I'm a author, I'm an activist, I was a sports trainer, um. I was a mountain biker. I'm a mother. Um, I'm a victim of gender violence. I am an artist. I'm an activist. And it looks like, or it sounds like a splatter gun. And to me, it's all underneath the same umbrella of wanting the world to change. And I just want people to give a shit. I'm going to ask you another quite seemingly glib sounding question. I hope that's all right. Um, but what, what, where did you find the strength to kind of take those steps after what happened to you? Because it, it, it sounds like, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I have no idea. And I don't want to pretend that I, I honestly, I, I don't because I don't know what makes one person survive another person um, become an advocate and another person hide and be forever, you know, traumatized and haunted. And I don't think that it's necessarily one or the other. I think that it's a mix of all those things. Like I feel like I am, I am still haunted and I, I choose unfortunately to continue to put myself into traumatic situations like this evacuation or, you know, like working in Afghanistan and the ways in which I did, like, I didn't choose a, a, I chose to engage and help others. And I think that helped me just get outside of myself. And I don't know if that's true because I've never really thought about it until um, you just asked me that question. Um, but I also just think in my mind, I, I, what other choice did I have? Like, 
And I know that it could have gone another way, but I think I'm just too fucking stubborn. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't really know. And, uh, and well, I mean, it because it, obviously the thing I want to talk to you about is the work you do with your daughter, because mm. you've got a whole you've got a whole other project that you do with your daughter, and also, you know, the work that you've done in Afghanistan. You described it as like you you want it, you you you're actively seeking out these situations where women are being marginalized whether whether it's societal or individual violence against them you know you're you're actively like you say you're looking for these scenarios to see where you can have an impact um and you know the 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 work that you're doing with your daughter is i'm assuming is probably quite tied to to this um position that you've outlined as well yeah she she came to me she'd always been involved with um, you know, from a young person, you know, wanting to quote, save the snow leopards. Um, so, you know, she, she saw it from a very young age as kind of, that's what I want to do. Um, now, like many kids, you know, they'll, they'll go through and, and, you know, have a bake sale and raise money for their pet project or their pet, uh, you know, activist, um, community effort. It stuck with her. And I think that she saw, through me, the modeling of change, of activism, of um, engagement, and certainly of storytelling. And she said to me once, um, I think I was, oh my gosh, she was maybe 10, nine or 10. And she's like, it's okay. You're going to solve the problem with women and I'm going to solve the problem for animals. And wow. you know, she just saw it like, so kind of <laughs> clearly in that way that you know, I'm like, yeah, that's just, your just that. Yeah, done. <laughs> two two people totally solved the problem. No, no worries. Um, but after I had the brain injuries, she really didn't want me going back to Afghanistan. Um, I went back after the first brain injury, and when the second one occurred, I mean, she basically saw me nearly die twice, um, and was she knew because she was older at that point. Um, she was born 11. She knew that the things that had happened to me in Afghanistan, she was listening to, you know, if, if I had a book signing or if I had an interview, she would hear stories that she hadn't heard before um, that were about suicide bombs or about near kidnappings or, you know, things that were a lot scarier than she thought it had been and was much more aware. And kids at school kept asking her, like, you know, if you're, you know, is your mom getting shot at or does your mom see bombs is your mom you know she, so she was becoming more aware and was and didn't want me to go back so we literally sat down for coffee and hot chocolate at a coffee shop in in Breckenridge where we were living and i said to her what if i didn't go back to afghanistan but i can't stop doing what i do you know i and so what if i helped mentor you. And that's how I presented it to her as like a collaboration and a mentorship, how you can do what you're passionate about and look at extinction and climate justice and, you know, endangered species. Um, and how do you, how do you do more than just fundraise? You know, how do you actually, and what she was really passionate about, this is pre Greta and, you know, pre, um, you know, Friday school protests, uh, climate protests, um, there weren't a lot of youth that were front and center. And so her feeling was, is why aren't adults willing to listen to young people? And I think that's still the refrain that we see today. Certainly, I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out um, again in, in Glasgow next week at COP26, um, because her generation is very aware of what's happening. But 
as she puts it, no one's listening. So this project started called Endangered Activism. And it was the idea of like, her passion was endangered species, but my my passion is activism. And the fact that I felt like that was getting endangered, the, the word activism or activist is still quite loaded, depending on what community you're in. Um, and so uh, that that was it. It was born. We we started thinking about what that could look like. And then it grew um, as I went through my own brain rehab into her leaving school for her seventh grade year. And we traveled for a year and a half and were able to literally take her at age 12 and 13 into very remote field research areas around the world and interview. She was put in the position of interviewing. So unique parallel to my work in Afghanistan was a very conscious effort not to step in to white saviorism and not to go into communities in Namibia and Borneo and Argentina and others with the idea of like, let's go help. No. Well, what do either of us have to contribute on the ground? What we had to contribute was learning. What we had the ability to do was storytelling. And so Devin became the interviewer. And so when she was 12, she started interviewing local leaders in climate justice, in conservation, in sustainability, um, in really remote areas. Um, you know, in the jungles of Borneo, um, there's an incredible field research place called Danau Garang. And in Namibia, we traveled all over the country interviewing people. And the idea was that Devon was going to lens extinction and endangered species through, you know, a, through a youth activist. So where can people find out about that work? Is that still ongoing? It is. It's temporarily unpaused just because we've moved country and, and had a death in the family. But um, it's endangeredactivism.org. And that has like a little video and, and kind of the background of what we did. And the fun, the really fun crossover was um, her trying to find a voice. She's not she's not a Greta. You know, she's not a, a vocal leader. She's she's more of an introvert. And so that led to, well, what are the other ways that you can have a voice? And that led to street art. So in July of 2018, um, she learned uh, wheat pasting and street art from a friend, Diana Garcia, who's a Mexican artist. And so Diana, myself, and Devin created a collaboration of endangered species that Devin had done field research on and interviewed about and seen in the flesh um, and then created these imagery, like life-sized images of um, elephants and sun bears and, and other animals that were pasted all over um, Paris and I think 13 different walls and the canal. We put a whale's tail in the canal. Um, and that was Devin's first experience with street art and how you don't have to be the person leading, you know, the the protest. You don't have to have the megaphone. You can still be an introvert. You can be an artist and fight for the issues you care about, which is very similar to me with the women's rights. Well, and, and, the, and the question that that kind of leads me to is, because if we look back at your work, obviously you've explored issues through many different mediums and, and through many different means of creative expression. Um, is that, is that, part of where that comes from or do you tend to 
look at the issue and then work out how you're going to find a voice through the different mediums, if that makes sense. Mm. Honestly, I think so much of it is just, you know, I, I don't know how much of it is, is pre-planned. I think a lot of it is, is you know, wanting to surprise people and, and kind of shock them out of their complacency, because I do feel like the reason we chose the word endangered activism was because it was focused on endangered species and extinction, but also the collaboration with me was the focus on the endangerment of activism, that people are too complacent, too apathetic. And so how do you inspire people to give a shit? How do you inspire people to care? And a lot of that, I think, is, um, you know, it's, it's continually evolving and finding new ways to tell what feels like the same story when, you know, you are surrounded in your bubble of other people who are who fight and who care. Um, and so it's it's finding new ways to surprise people and to educate people and to um, express your your view of things. And street art is an amazing way to be able to do that. Did it take you a while to build up the confidence to express yourself in, in these different ways? Because it's obviously, uh, you know, earlier you described your approach. I think you'd used the phrase like scattergun maybe like um but it, i i kind of understand where you're coming from with that because if i look at what i do like it can be similarly all over the place like with different you know different means of expression like different areas of interest um but your range is really broad you know if you look at like what you've actually worked on over the years and yeah i just wonder because it can be people can find it difficult enough to to, to find the confidence to express themselves in one arena so to actually like be confident enough in like multiple arenas uh, I'm interested if that took you a while to almost give yourself permission to act in that way yeah I think to a certain extent it did because I didn't you know I wasn't trained as a writer I wasn't trained as a filmmaker I wasn't trained as an artist um I wasn't really trained as anything you know I mean and I think in some respects um, you know, I, I used to joke that it was like, you know, the, the traditional moniker would be, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But then I was like, but if it was a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, that would be what we considered a Renaissance man. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Someone that. who is, and I think that for me, it, it's that I'm, I'm, my curiosity overwhelms my fear. And I think that's like, I think that's what really it comes down to is I'm so curious, one, about the world. I'm so curious about, and I, so I think that that overrides my fear of traveling solo through places where I don't speak the language, like Syria or Laos or, you know, all number of places where I can't maybe even, I don't, can't even read the alphabet. And I'm, I love traveling solo and my fear of traveling solo is you know, like that big when compared, like tiny compared to like my curiosity, which is huge. And so I think it's the same thing with how I choose to express myself is I'm curious. I'm so curious that I want to try everything. And so finding, and, and that means I fail a lot and I am appalled when I look back at things that I've created and I think, oh, why, you know, I know, I wish I would have waited because I know how to do that now. And then I realized, well, I know how to do it now because I did that. You know, um, I now know how to write a book because I wrote a book. 
Um, and so there's there's things that I hate about my books. There's things I hate about how I uh, approached being a producer um, on a film. There's things I hate about my street art or, you know, um, or or interviews I've given in the past. But now I know how to do them because I've done them. That's the only way I know how to say it. Yeah, it's a neat quote about that. Alan de Botton, if you're not embarrassed about who you were a year ago, you're probably not progressing enough, which kind of, you know, yeah. sums, sums up that. Because that, like you said, it's just part of creativity, isn't it? You know, you, it's part it's part of the, the the difficulty of it as well, because ultimately you are putting yourself out there for your mistakes to be public, aren't you? Exactly. And um, I just think you need to embrace it, really. Which yeah. took me a long, a long time to learn personally, because I certainly empathise with what you're saying. When I look back at some of the previous output of mine, I'm just like, oh God, really? Um, <laughs> but what you just have to embrace it as part of it, don't you? Because otherwise, exactly. you wouldn't you, you wouldn't do anything really if you if you were yeah, too I fixated think, on that. And I think it's an interesting space that we're in right now that makes people really scared to try. Um, and scared to change because I look at the mistakes that I've made or who I was, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, last month and think, oh, you know, I could beat myself up over things I've said or um, what I didn't know because I think right now we're in this framework of social media of, you know, cancel culture and calling people out for, you know, literally misspelling tweets, canceling people out or not canceling people out for that, but like, you know, harassing them, um, you know, picking on, you know, every quote out of context. And so it kind of puts you in this space of fear that we shouldn't have because we should think that, yeah, of course I want to evolve. Of course I want to change. Um, if I'm doing anything right, I should be radically, I think I should be radically different, you know, five years from now, because I would hope that I'm continuing to learn and unlearn everything that I was conditioned as a child. Yeah. Well, which is creative evolution, isn't it? That's, exactly. how, that's, how, that's how you get there. Well, with that in mind, one question I, I often ask guests on type two, um, because there's a lot of people listening that, are, you know, engaged in activism on, on their own level or, or certainly interested in understanding how they can be more effective activists so I'm sure it's a question you've been asked before but do you have any advice for people that are kind of passionate about making a difference and wondering where to start I mean I think it comes back to something that you said earlier when you asked me about um, you know fear and strength and other things like that is you have to be willing to put yourself out there and not be limited I see too many people I think just be limited well that wasn't what I studied or that isn't what I, you know, that isn't what I'm trained to do. And I don't know anyone who is actually working in whatever they originally studied as, as adults. Most people aren't, unless they're a doctor or a lawyer, maybe. Um, most people um, have really unique skills that either are just part of who they are and, and the different skills they've amassed or potentially, you know, what they trained in. And we tend to look at these issues through the lens of who's in front publicly. So it looks like it needs to be a certain thing. And I think we forget that every single person has something to contribute to changing the world, whether that's in climate justice movement or whether that's in women's rights and gender, whether that's 
um, you know, in civil rights, Black Lives Matter, um, everyone has a skill set to contribute, but very few of us need to be in the front of it. You know, there, there's so much work that is done behind the scenes and we have to remember um, that we just, we have to dive in, we have to ask questions, we have to just volunteer, you know, hands up and volunteer. Yeah. And I don't have much more, I don't have great advice on that other than, um, you know, just give a shit and get involved. Which leads to probably my final question. Like when you, how do you stay positive given, you know, if you, if you take, if you take the experience that we've talked about today with Afghanistan that you've had, which I'm assuming must be again, understatement, hugely dispiriting like with what you've what you've seen the strides that were made and then the you know the the retrograde steps that we've, we've witnessed last few months and then you know we're speaking the week before glasgow um which and, and also the day after like for example the uk just did a tax cut on domestic flights <laughs> yes <laughs> you know like there's, there's a, the, the like the activism conversation always takes place against the backdrop of these wider political um situations or developments let's say and it, it's it's a one step forward two steps back thing isn't it quite frequently so how do you personally maintain you know the, the positivity that you've obviously got in the face of that i mean it's it definitely feels like a roller coaster and it's interesting that you say that because somebody else who's working on the evacuations uh said that to me it was like you know a 1am phone call and you know time zones are crazy because everybody's on different time zones and I was thinking to myself, man, I, I don't feel like I'm being very, po like, I feel depressed. I feel very depressed. Um, and then I realized like, yeah, but the positivity comes across because I just keep going. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I don't know how much of that, again, is just stubbornness. Um, but I think that there's, there's ironically, and this starts to go kind of into the weeds a little bit, but one of the authors that I love is Carlos Rovelli. I'm fascinated, and this started after my brain injuries. I was fascinated with the idea of quantum time and understanding. I'd had a year and a half of memory loss, like a year and a half just erased from my brain. Wow. And um, I was curious about the, the ideas of memory, the ideas of time. With a brain that's not very function was not functioning very well, it maybe wasn't the time to dive into quantum because <laughs> I think you know that's not that's not my background anyways. But um, what it did do at a time where I was very depressed, and what I kind of keep coming back to was really understanding like what a tiny tiny little piece of the the evolutionary or universal timeline we're on. Like it's like a snap. And we're, our period of time will be gone. And so instead of that making me feel hopeless, that actually makes me feel very hopeful because it's the idea that like, I'm not going to say this very well because I didn't think about talking about this, but it's this idea that there, there's just so much. It's, I guess it comes back to curiosity too. Like the, the universe is vast. Our understanding of things is minute. So what why would I, one, why would I then be fearful to try things because it feels very insignificant? And to me, that's, again, that's not hopeless, that's hopeful. Like I, I should seize every opportunity because it's a very short timeline. 
So there you go. That was me and Shannon Galpin, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So you can find out more about Shannon's work at shannongalpin.com. Um, she's also on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the links through Shannon's website. Thank you for listening to this episode and for supporting Type 2 in general. I release every episode of Type 2, new episodes of Type 2, I should say, every month or so through my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Spotify, Apple Podcast, or the usual podcast outlets. Um, you can also find my entire back catalogue of Type 2 and the main Looking Sideways podcast over at www.wearelookingsideways.com. There are now coming up to 200 interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours on there. And there are 20 Type 2 episodes as well. So plenty to get your teeth stuck into. All right, nice one. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.